Hi, I'm Tiki Barber, co-founder of Thusio. Thanks for listening to the Thusio Live and Unfiltered podcast. This episode features our conversation with Chicago Cubs legend, Ryan Sandberg. Ryan, the 1984 league MVP, talks about his Hall of Fame career, some of his most memorable games, and what it was like to play under the lights at famed Wrigley Field for the first time in August 1988. Enjoy the interview. Uh, I'm Teddy Greenstein from the Chicago Tribune. Thanks so much for being here. Traffic was a beast for uh, Rhino. Yeah, how long from Lake Bluff? 220. 220, 38 miles is all it is. You could have run faster, right? I I could have run faster, but after about four miles when you're on uh, the the 41, there you see the Hancock building. It's right there, and it took another two hours and ten minutes from there, but it's right there in front of me. How about a boat, like, you know, a Miami Vice cigarette? I mean, that, that could get you here in, like, probably eight minutes or something. Let's do it. Let's I'm do in. it. All I'm right. In. We'll, I'm we'll, in. We'll pass the hat, and maybe we'll be able to get that done before the yeah, end of the night. Yeah, but that's normal. You know, I figured it out, uh, uh, being the ambassador to the Cubs my first year in uh, 2016. Mm-hmm. What a year that was. Pretty good. Uh, re- I was away for four years, and I came back and rejoined the Cubs January of, of 16. What a move that was for me. Um, but anyway, I figured out uh, being the ambassador and coming to the ballpark. I'm at, I'm at Wrigley Field about 60 out of the, uh, the 81 home games and figured out quick from Lake Bluff where there was a 120 game. I could leave any time after 10 o'clock. I'd be down there in probably about 45, 50 minutes. Yeah. Uh, the, and then I was very comfortable with that. And then the early April game, 7.05 game, I said, well, 7 o'clock, I mean, I could leave at 5 o'clock and be there at 6.15, no problem. No, no, two hours and a half leaving at 5 o'clock. So I got that figured out, but I didn't figure it out tonight. So it uh, was about four minutes late, but uh, that's, yeah. that's how it goes. But um, Anyway, uh, yeah. en- enjoy what I'm doing with the Cubs, yeah. and uh, uh, that's all. That's all good. So, um, well, let me g- let me give the proper intro. I there mean, you go. Okay. not that any of you don't know about this man's accomplishments, but ten-time All-Star, nine-time Gold Glove winner, NL MVP, 1984, as we all know. No- his number 23. He's not only retired, but he was only the fourth Cubs player to have his number retired. Um, now, did you guys know that? He auditioned briefly to, to do the bullpen dance for the Cubs. Did, did anybody see the video on that? Ryan, Ryan Sandberg knows how to floss, just like my 10-year-old daughter. I have eight grandkids. I mean, why wouldn't I? So when you have eight grandkids and the oldest is 10 and you go to these uh, Little League games <laughs> and one of your grandkids or their teammates or opponents now hits a single, hits a double... And they do the floss on base. Now, back in my damn old school, I mean, that calls for a little chin music. Uh, next time I'm a little eager. But, but uh, you know, I'm 58 years old. I've adjusted to the times. So now I, I Googled. I got, went home. I Googled the floss. Got in front of the mirror for about 10 minutes. And so uh, I, I got it down. It does take 10 minutes to run. Oh. Let's go. We need more drinks. We need more drinks. Maybe at the end. Here we go. (laughs) 
would your grandkids be impressed or horrified? Very impressed. They'd be impressed. Good. No, very impressed. Yeah. yeah no. I'm impressed. I have tried I'm horrified, but they're impressed. <laughs> These guys were impressed no, as well. Teddy, one thing about the number 23. So uh, I was traded from the uh, Phillies to the Cubs in the winter of 1981. I go to spring training as a, as a AAA player uh, with, the, with the Phillies at the time. So I'm with the Cubs big league camp. And I wore, I, I forget what number I wore in spring training. Uh, this is 82, but then, uh, but then I found out I made the team, uh, and and kind of feeling cocky for about two minutes as a rookie player, I went up to Yosh Kawano, who was the clubhouse guy for the uh, for the uh, home clubhouse for about 66 years. I started thinking about numbers because you know now I got comfortable with Larry Boa and Bill Buckner and these guys, and just saw that they had numbers that they liked. I had the nerve to go up and ask Yosh Kawano for number 14. <laughs> he, said, he said, son, you're not gonna wear 14. That's going up on the foul pole uh, this season. You will wear the number that's hanging in your locker. <laughs> it was number 23. I looked at it and I said, that's a very odd number to me. I thought it was like odd. Well, it is time. literally odd, but okay. A little, a little odd at the time. It was odd. Yeah. But war number 23, and then uh, two years later, Michael Jordan comes yeah. to Chicago. He's 23, and and the number really took off. So, <laughs> with uh, uh, I assume with, with no options, no I, options for me, by the way. Well, I assume you told Michael, "Hey, why'd you steal my number?" Or I mean, no, he knew. He knew I was here two years before him. Yeah. So yeah. he knew get, that. Get some royalties. Um, who? 14, obviously Ernie Banks. Yeah, so, obviously. I didn't know that at uh, 21 years old. I didn't realize that. Right. Well, I wonder now if guys ask for 23 and then uh, Yosh is no longer there. But the clubhouse <laughs> attendant says... Maybe the same response. Right. Not so fast, young man. Who of those veterans was the toughest on you? I mean, I'd imagine Boa, Buckner. I mean, these are strong-willed guys, right? Uh, very strong-willed. It was a tough game back in the early 80s. Uh, teams were put together for a number of years. They were veteran players. Uh, I think the prime of a major leaguer at that time was like 28 to 33. So older guys that have been in the league seven or eight years, and then they'd play 12, 15 years if they were lucky enough. But I learned my lesson when I came up with the Phillies in 81 as a September call-up. And I walked into that locker room, and Pete Rose was playing first base. They just won the World Series in 80. Pete Rose, Manny Trio at second, Bo at short, Mike Schmidt, Bob Boone, Steve Carlton, Tug McGraw, Greg Lazinski, Bake McBride, and Gary Maddox. Incredible. That's what I thought. I mean, every guy so is a known guy. I'm a 21-year-old going yeah. into this locker room for a September call-up where I'm, there, I'm going to be there for 30 days. And once I walked in there and felt the vibe within about 15 seconds of that group, my, I, just, yeah. I just zipped my mouth. I didn't say a word. I was, I was almost embarrassed to go to my locker and get dressed. Uh, Larry Boer reminded me, because I was traded with him over to the Cubs, he reminded me that, uh, the first day that we went out to take ground balls, probably September 1st. Yeah. We were in Atlanta. I stood about 20 feet behind him, because I was a shortstop in the minor leagues. I stood 20 feet behind him and just stood there and finally, he just he looks back and says, uh, hey, Sandy, you want to take some ground balls with me? I said, oh, sure, sure. 
So, uh, you know, I, was, I didn't even want to take my pregame workout or get ground balls in because I, these guys were ahead of me. So I think with that attitude, now Larry Bowe and myself are traded to the Cubs that winter, joined Bill Buckner, uh, Jody Davis was there, Leon Durham, Keith Moreland came over. I think the fact that I kept my mouth shut and, and did not say a word, I think went a long way with answering your question. I don't think any of them gave me a hard time because I acted the act and I showed respect right off the bat. And so, um, so much different than today's game where these players get together, all of, I mean, first of all, I think the average age or the, the, um, uh, the prime time in today's major league right now, I think, I think is more like maybe like 23 to 29. Chris Bryant. Much younger. Rizzo. Sure. Much younger game. Uh, that's when they're at their best. They're very talented as soon as they come up at 20, 21 years old. And it's a different generation where these guys get together. They're just all young guys. And if this guy comes up and he's 20, they just invite him in. They take him out to dinner. They buy him some suits. Uh, they wear pajamas on the flights. It's a much, it's a much looser atmosphere than I had with Don Zimmer. Don Zimmer never let us wear pajamas on the flights. It, it was just a step down from a tuxedo, by the way. So you talk about straight and nervous and all that. It, as far as a generation, completely different today than than back then. So today, the young guys are welcomed in. They're one of the guys, that, which is the way it should be. Baseball is a game. It should be fun. I think today's generation handles it much better than than my generation. Right. But I, th I think I would have liked to have played uh, no less than uh, than in the 80s and 90s like I did. Interesting. So there's a lot there I want to follow up on. But can you imagine if Joe Madden had been your manager when you came up and he says, all right, got to wear a Superman costume as for, for the flight to San Diego. Do you think you would have enjoyed that? Well, first of all, I would have double-checked with a few of the veterans that, that I wasn't the only one that got right. the message, and it wasn't <laughs> some kind of a joke on the rookie from the manager. I would have double-checked. I wouldn't have believed it because it was not going to happen in the early 80s. That's not how things were done. It was much more uh, aggressive of a game on the field yeah. and uh, brawls on the field and rivalries and pitching inside and getting hit in the back and that was okay until you hit your guy back another one back and now you're fighting on the field uh, every other week it was a much different game as a middle infielder young middle infielder Larry Boeff one of the first things he told me when we took ground balls I turned a couple double plays from second they moved, just moved me to second he said hey wait a minute wait a minute he called me over by second base he said you can't turn it like that. You have to jump up about six feet in the air every time you turn a double play because the runners on first base are going to try and kill you <laughs> at second base. And that was a fact. Uh, in, in Major League Baseball in the 80s and uh, at least most of the 90s, that was the job of the runner on first base was to get down there, break up the double play. There was no rules about it. You could hit the guy up in the belt. You could hit him wherever you wanted to. And he also told me when I took infield, which uh, we took infield every day except for Sundays, all the way through my career, which you don't even, they don't even do anymore. Uh, he told me, and both teams are watching, by the way. Your team's out there and the other team's watching. Then they take infield. You see the outfielder's arms. He told me, now that I'm playing second base, I'm going to give you a couple of feeds there down by your, by your knees, by your ankles. Go ahead and turn it from there, right down from the ground, and let the other team yep. see that you'll turn it from underneath. 
That's your defense from them coming in and trying to kill you as you have the baseball and now you can drill them wherever you want to in the face. And that was the payback. So that's how the game was. That was the mentality. So to answer your question about the pajamas, it was the complete opposite of that. So along those lines, you, of course, we all saw the Anthony Rizzo play from about a week ago, right? Takes out the catcher. doesn't. It's a perfect slide to break up the double play going to first base. Ruled legitimate at the time, but then the next day MLB changes its mind. And did you see the play from today or did you hear what happened? Today? Yes. There was a play today? There was a very interesting play today for those who haven't seen it. I did it. not. Uh, yeah, I know. Let's, let's go to the videotape. Albert Almora is uh, tagging up from third. He uh, comes to the plate. Uh, the Phillies catcher, Andrew Knapp, has his foot out. Uh, Almora can't touch the plate. He is ruled out on the field. They go to replay in New York, and he is ruled safe because his path was blocked to home plate. Blocking home plate. Yeah. yeah, the rules very understood now. When I was managing the Phillies, that was the first year of that and replay. Uh, there was some com confusion early because uh, everybody's used to coming in and just having no boundaries on how you could yeah. score a run. You could bowl over the catcher. You could slide here, there, whatever it might be. Um, but it didn't take it didn't take but maybe maybe one season to get that figured out. So that doesn't surprise me. You think it's me. figured out? I think they still have no idea what to do. Well, obviously the catcher didn't know because they're trained. Yeah. The catchers are trained that you cannot block the plate. You have to give the runner a, a straight shot or a clear shot of home plate and then go there. Going back to the Rizzo play, force out infields in, the force out at home plate. The catcher's got one foot on the base. He's stretched out and he's going to try and turn the double play infield to catcher to first base. Rizzo, old-time player, baseball player, knows how to play, respects the game, the history, all that in one package, comes in and slides, and half of his leg would have crossed home plate. I mean, for me, I, 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 I have nothing, Fantastic. no problem with that. <laughs> right. in, in my days, they would have slid another six feet right. out here and caught both feet, yeah. maybe spikes high and spiked right. the catcher in the kneecap which would have caused a brawl. We're fighting on the field once again for over that. But it's a, it's a good play. Nobody, nothing happens. Nobody's kicked out. It's just we fight, and that's all over with. And so um, some of the rules changes that. Uh, second base, now they have to slide and, and straight into second base. Uh, so when I'm watching this, it takes me a little bit to get over the fact that they changed some of these rules yeah. at second base, at home play. But... Uh, I have a ambassador, ambassador role with the Cubs, and so I'm at Wrigley Field about 60 out of 81 games. If the Cleveland Indians come into town, I want to see Lindor play shortstop. If uh, the Giants come into play, I want to see Posey catch. So I get it. I, I would like to see the best players on both teams play. I want the fan. I think that's what the fans want. I want to see the best talent. So I, I totally, I totally understand that. That, but the Rizzo's play still for me. It's still a, a clean slide. That was mission accomplished. That was an amazing slide. I mean, he got he got the result that he exactly wanted. Now, so could you play in this era? <laughs> I mean, if oh you yeah, had, in a heartbeat. Yeah, and it would be, I mean, quote unquote, easier at second base. You wouldn't have to worry about getting your knees knocked out. Did you ever get injured from somebody sliding into you? Uh, good question. With low, Larry Boa's advice about jumping every t single time I turned a double play, I got flipped over twice. <laughs> Uh, Lonnie Smith, mm -hmm. 
uh, all of baseball knew that he did not know how to slide because he did not know how to slide. Uh, and, and if you just watched him play, he would start his slide, and second base was back here, and how he slide, and he's, in, he's almost to left field. So a very late slider. He caught me on the way down. I, I turned the double play, flipped, and then Dan Gladden got me from the Giants. I actually turned the double play once again. I was up in the air. He had slid, and then he stood all the way up and caught me on the waist, flipped over, and that was the only two times. So not too bad for 18 years. But um, I just got the reputation that I wouldn't be there stationary at second base. I learned to come this way. I learned to go this way, this way, jump. And they didn't know where I was going, so I had a feel where the runner was and always went the other way. Missed out on, on twice, uh, guessed the wrong way. Did you ever bean a base runner with a low throw? Uh, just once. <laughs> just once. And uh, you know what? That's all it takes. Because then that's... Uh, there is, uh, is sabermetrics. There, there was scouting reports back then. And sure. as soon as you hit somebody, it's on... Uh, well, I don't even know if there was ESPN when I first started. But... Um, it, the word would get around, and, yeah. and like I said, with infield, you, uh, you turn double plays, and you come from down. You come from down here. I learned that from Manny Trio. Yep. That was your defense. So uh, anytime that Lonnie Smith, Dan Gladden, Mike Sosha, very very good on breaking up a double play. Any uh, Kirk Gibson, any of these guys. There's a lot of them. Every team had a guy tough breaking up the double play. As soon as that guy got on first base, I was like this to Larry Boa and to Ron say, "Give me the baseball." as soon as you can. So, yeah, exactly. And they would do that, they would charge the ball, I would have the ball, and now this guy's out there. I come from down low, they slide, come up about eight feet short of second base, and the throw and turn to double play. How about that? Speaking of sabermetrics, are you into launch angle, exit velocity, and what do you think of the modern day approach to hitting where it's basically an all or nothing strikeout home run extravaganza? I don't know about exit velocity. But uh, I hit 30 home runs one year, hit 40 the next. I think there was some velocity going out of yeah. the ballpark those years. I, I didn't need to be measured there. Uh, so that's one, uh, and, and hitting, hitting the ball hard. But sabermetrics, it's very interesting. Um, with today's player and this generation of player that not, did not, in my opinion, did not play wiffle ball in the front yard, uh, did not do lineups right-handed, left-handed, which I did, and, uh, and learn how to move the baseball and direct the baseball in a different direction just by standing differently or let yep. the ball travel different. And then if I want to hit the ball over here and here's home plate, I'm going to get off the plate a little bit to get a pitch away mm -hmm. and then let the ball travel a little bit further, make contact, and hit the ball over here same way this way. This generation I don't think did that in the front yard. This is a generation of in the front of the computers, yep. uh, Nintendo, all seg all that and they were this little guy on the screen with this with the perfect swing all the time so i think that's what this generation uh is all about so they don't make adjustments so sabermetrics and where to play guys ironically they put fielders in, in these odd positions here's an absolute great swing and a bullet and you look up and there's a guy standing there one hopper right at him they throw him out it's it's, it's incredible now, with the shifts and all that, uh, you take a guy like Pete Rose. I would have tried to do the same thing, but Pete Rose, my hero growing up in the 70s, Saturday game of the week growing up in Spokane, Washington, that's all the Major League Baseball I saw. Did not have WGN, did not have the Braves. I had one game a week uh, in the 70s, uh, the Big Red Machine on there a lot. 
you put a shift on Pete Rose, you, you could have put uh, 20 guys all over here and left an eight-foot space right. over here by the third base bag as a left field, as a left-handed hitter. He would have made an adjustment to hit the ball that on that eight, six-foot spot over there by third base to get a base hit. That was a generation of handling the bat, what you got to do, what the pitch has to be to, to uh, hit the ball in a certain way. So some of those things is generational with this group. And it's very interesting how it works. Uh, did you it's incredible. Happen to, yeah, did you see Jake Arrieta's comments where he was incredibly critical of the Phillies for how they shift? Did you? I don't know if you saw that. Well, I, I heard about it, and um, I didn't see what the shift was. I know that he was very successful with, uh, with the Cubs, obviously, uh, with the World Series, Cy Young. Uh, I'm not sure what, uh, how the Phillies, how drastically they go. Apparently very drastic, too drastic Apparently, for his taste. Yeah, too, yeah, exactly. But uh, it, uh, so there's two different opinions there. With with the shifts and the and the sabermetrics, there's usually with the shifts there's usually a conversation with the pitching coach, with the infield coach, with the outfield coach, how they're going to play the guys. And a pitcher's allowed to be in with that meeting, and he can veto anything, or he can have a different idea on a particular hitter, how the pitcher's going to pitch him. The better the pitcher, the more so. Yep. If I was a one- or a two-year pitcher or a five-year pitcher, I probably wouldn't even say a word. I'd just be happy to be there and just have the feelers behind him make the plays. Yep. But a veteran guy, so Jake Arrieta, I don't know. I would, uh, I would say that there were – backing him a little bit with his success and with his stature. Yeah. Uh, there was something that he disagreed with. I don't think that he was involved with a meeting to have him coordinate with what the defense Or he got overruled. <laughs> or he got overruled, yeah. exactly. So he knows his stuff, it, yeah. I mean, I trust him. No question. Yeah. Um, by the way, did you see how many guys Tyler Chatwood walked today? Seven. I mean, can you – can you think of anyone? The Cubs won 4-3 now. Cubs won somehow. Cubs won. Can, can you equate him to anyone? Is there any pitcher you can think of who walks this many guys? No, he, and he averages five Still and a half. ends up in the big leagues? Yeah, he's a free agent. Who? Mel Rojas. In, uh, in I, short I, I was here for Mel Rojas when he came over. He, he was saving 50 and 60 games for the Expos. He came back. He came, came with the Cubs and couldn't get anybody out. But. Yeah. That's besides the point. He's not here to defend himself, but it's, it's just the facts. Yeah. Huh? Marmel. Um, he was wild. That's a good one. You but, know what? But Chet, as a starter, Chatwood so has a funny, funny delivery where he really – a pitcher comes up like this. He goes back, he breaks, and he pitches. Chatwood has a thing where he takes the ball out early and then waves it around and then, and then comes. I, I think that creates a little bit of wildness there. And uh, for him to be right, he has to get strike one, and then he can be effectively wild. But you got to get ahead of the hitters. And if they see that you're struggling out there, they're major league hitters, the coaches, they're not going to allow the hitters yep. to go up there and just swing away. So he's still working on something. And uh, I do the, uh, the score, the post-game wrap-up show, 10 minutes talking about the game and uh, about 30, 40 minutes uh, for phone call-ins. So I'm expecting all of you to call in these next couple of weeks and say that you're at the Thuzio the uh, event, and I have a question for you. But um, I was impressed um, in today's game, at least with the Cubs, they're real up front. 
when they're working on something and they share a lot of the things that are going on for just just to not hide anything and then about two weeks ago they, they talked that Chadwood Chad, uh, Chatwood would be, um, be working on some mechanical things so he's gonna do it on the side we'll see what happens uh, all you fans and all, everybody just come out and watch and see what happens and, and, and watch and see what happens. So there's no secret there. And yeah, I they got more that, work to do. I think that's good. They got more work to yeah. do. Uh, it's been the same way with Jason Hayward the last three years. Yeah. He's got some things to work to do. That Grand was Slam amazing. Walk off. I was up there in the booth getting ready to do the postgame show and I, uh, I was up there for, uh, for Miggy Montero's Grand Slam against the Dodgers in 16. I was up there for that. And it was a little bit scary because the, the stadium actually shook a little bit. Yes. I don't know what the movement ratio was, but this it was moving a quarter of an inch, the whole stadium, I felt. And so the same thing when uh, when Jason Hayward's uh, Grand Slam landed right field bleachers. Uh, Hitting a buck 39 against lefties. Two strikes, and that happens. It, it does happen. And uh, it, was, it was a game which, uh, which had some combination of, of some pitchers facing some hitters that were not good matchups, all resulting in home runs. Huh. Uh, that's baseball. But... Uh, that was that was I mean that was awesome to see that. So Jason Hayward uh, working on some mechanical things still three years into uh, being here at Cub and uh, it comes up big in that one game. A newbie, of course, is you Darvish. Uh, I was among those who thought it was wise to sign Darvish instead of me too. Yeah, instead of Arietta. What <laughs> you do you want to mulligan on that or are you holding out hope? No, 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 I don't. Uh, I don't like to second guess because um, being a minor league manager, being a uh, major league uh, ma major league manager for just the two years, I appreciate the scouts and the scouting and how to project how a player is going to uh, go on and, and play and perform. I think it's one of the toughest things. Now, this, now this is a veteran guy, but he's, he's thrown much less, about half less pitches over the last few years than uh, – um, you saying Darvish has thrown less or less Ari yeah. than, than Jake Arietta. So that was, that's, that felt good to me. Uh, Darvish, uh, I think said the right things to the Cubs. All he wants to do is win a world series to add a guy like that to the mix. Uh, I think was very good. Uh, I do think that Jake Arietta was, uh, at, at the time and his agent was holding out for five, six year contract, five year contract, yep. ended up getting three. I thought it was classy of the Cubs going in the in the last hour, and uh, and offering something to Jake. And I, but I think at that point uh, it's run its course. But you uh, Darvish for me is is a talent. Sometimes it, it's interesting to see how a player adjusts to the new ballparks, the new cities, the new stadiums, the new fan base. A little bit out of the comfort zone, especially a guy that uh, that doesn't speak. Uh, he speaks some English, about 50%, but a new city and is moving his family, he has kids. So a comfort zone there, and it's still, we're talking June, the 1st of June. So I think we've yeah. got the, the best of uh, you, Darvish coming up. It could be right on time. What I've seen from these Cubs the last, since 15, going to the playoffs all these years, is there's been some blessings in disguise. This could be something where you, Darvish, lights it up for the last three months of the season. He's fresh. He, he and other guys, you know what? It's a chance for other young play, uh, other pitchers to step in, which is good. But maybe he's lights out, and maybe he pushes them uh, to another postseason. Right, because he. So you never know. Yeah, he might only end up pitching 120 innings during the regular 150, something like that. And so then maybe he'll be thing. fresh. But I, 
but it's just been so strange. I mean, two stints on the DL and doesn't seem really injured, but he's got no, something going on. To... Is it in his head? Is it in his arm? What do you think? Well, this is Chicago, and uh, this is this is uh, I mean, I mean, this is very visible. A lot of media here, fans are off the charts, very knowledgeable. <clears throat> there will come a time where he'll need to go out and pitch and pitch well. But uh, to, to be a big signing and have the have the big hoopla of him in the wintertime as the big signing and and then this go like this for the first two months, uh, so much discouraging to the fans, and uh, I totally get that. Yeah. But I think the best of you, Darvis, is, is yet to come. Let's hope so. Um, so about a month ago, I ended up writing about Sammy Sosa. Uh, he did an interview with NBC Sports Chicago that I was quite critical of. Um, Sammy in there said that uh, he has no ego and he's a humble man. <laughs> and I was wondering how David Kaplan wasn't laughing when, uh, when Sammy said those things. Did you see the interview? And before you answer that, actually, let me ask you guys. All right. I want to know if you guys think the Cubs should, quote unquote, let him return without apologizing. So applaud if you think first that they should. That many. Applaud if you think they should not, he should apologize or something. Now, I can tell you, I wrote that column. I wrote that column and 95% of the people actually agreed with the column and, and said, I don't miss this guy. I don't want him back here. Did you see that interview? And do, do you think Tom Ricketts position is the right one? I saw bits and pieces of the interview. I did. I don't think he answered the biggest question that was out there. Uh, the one we all know the answer to? That we all know the answer to. So he didn't fess up to that. Uh, I don't even know if they asked about the cork bats when he was, uh, all the cork bats that he had in his locker. I don't think that was asked. But, uh, um, you know, for me, I gave a Hall of Fame speech in 2005, and I used the word respect 28 times, respect for the game of baseball. And there were certain things that Sammy did that, uh, that for me, was not respectful for the game, even when he was at the highest point. Yep. Uh, and I retired in 1997. I was, a, I, was a, I was a teammate of Sammy's for five years leading up to that. Myself, Andre Dawson were there, and everything was in check. Uh, every, there was no problem with the guys. We played hard. We might have been some players short, but everybody went about it the right way. Uh, by leadership in the in the locker room, 98. I go to spring training as the, as a guest instructor. Sammy walks in and he was absolutely twice the size. I saw him just four months ago and shook hands and, said, and he said, you know, congratulations on your career. And I said, holy cow! And then, but it didn't really dawn on me. I watched the first couple rounds of batting practice and he's in Mesa. He's hitting, he's hitting balls uh, from Mesa up to Scottsdale, and I was never seen that before. Was, I, was just, I just played for 18 years and hit, took batting practice on those same fields, and he's hitting it uh, a mile and a half. And uh, I was actually uh, looked at it and was, was, in, awe, was, was in awe of that. Did not, did not really register at the moment. Uh, so was a little bit naive as far as that went because I just retired six, six months ago. And as baseball players, when you're on the bases, you talk to the umpires, you see how they're doing, you talk to the players, you talk to the first base coach, you talk to the first baseman, the shortstop, and everybody knows what's going on in the game. And, and for me, uh, I will say uh, honestly, when I retired in 1997, I had no inkling of anybody uh, 
with uh, perform-enhancing drugs, uh, steroids of that era, of, of, that, of that sense. The very next year, Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa go head-to-head. -head. Uh, I saw, well, I hit 40 home runs one year, won the, won the National League home run champion. I saw Andre Dawson, MVP, hit 49 home runs. It felt like he hit a home run like every other day, and it was 49. Yep. The very next year, we're seeing 60s and 70s put up there, and I just I said, wait a minute, what game is this? Yep. <clears throat> I, mean, I, I mean, I couldn't believe it. I, re I really couldn't. I couldn't even, uh, couldn't even relate to what I was watching as far as stats. I mean, a guy had uh, 38 home runs and uh, 90 home runs at the All-Star break. There was, yeah, there was nobody else, there was nobody else uh, I can even compare that I to. I think Juan Gonzalez might have had 100 RBIs at the All-Star break. Right. Yeah. And so for me, I just played 18 years. And so, okay, oftentimes players will say, yeah, this guy reminds me of that guy. This guy, this guy's a young player, reminds me of him. There was no comparison to any players. that we, So it was hard to watch. Uh, so that, that, was a, that was a red flag for me, uh, just watching the, the numbers go up and the size of the players. Um, <clears throat> Also, I never had an entourage and six people in the clubhouse, and uh, I never had a, I never had a stereo system the size of this backdrop here yeah. in a clubhouse, and and have it in one locker and have just a certain type of music in there. Or so have somebody carry your boombox from city to city. So that was my favorite part. Yeah. So that was something I couldn't relate to either, yeah. and uh, probably the biggest thing that I had a problem with, uh, and it wasn't just Sammy, but it was that. Uh, from 98 on for about six years, it was all about the home run. But to watch players celebrate themselves hitting a home run, and it's the seventh inning and their team is losing now nine to three. Well, the team's not gonna win the game. So the other 23 guys are not gonna win the game. The manager's not gonna win. The organization's not gonna win that game. But here's a player who just hit a home run and he's doing jumping jacks and high-fiving everybody in front of the, the, the camera at everybody back home. I'm, for me, that wasn't the team game that I was brought up with the Mike Schmitz and the Pete Roses and that generation of players where it's about the team winning. So that was totally against everything that, that I stood for. So all in all, uh, what's, what was the question? Well, <laughs> I have no idea, but I'll get to a similar one. Did any of you guys try to rein in Sammy in the early days? Try to try to, try to rein him in. Did any of you say, this is not how we do this here? Oh, Andre and I, rein, we reined him in, and, and everything, like I said, everything was in check when we were on the team in the, in the, in the uh, locker room in uniform. Yeah. Uh, now a player like Sammy and these other players would have a year, one year like that, and now the next year uh, it's totally out of control. I know that there were uh, charity events, uh, a cruise out on Lake Michigan, which I did for my last 10 years, raised money for uh, Cubs charities, Cubs care at the time, not a problem. Uh, you're, under Major League uh, and Baseball Players Association rules, I think the players have to do two events for the club. Uh, after 98, uh, that cruise was canceled because, as a, a player said, there's no privacy on the boat and I can't relax. There's too many fans around. That was the end of the cruise, end of raising, raising charity money for unfortunate people in Chicago, and I was not a big fan of that. Yeah, and we know when, when Sammy went on a rehab assignment to the minors, uh, you and I, I think, know that story of him stiffing a lot of fans. Now, he was also 
you know, a great entertainer and probably good to fans sometimes, but certainly not all the time. Let's shift gears. So we're almost at the 30-year anniversary of the first night game at Wrigley Field. Are we? 8888. We're getting close. Oh, we, oh it's this year. It's this yeah, year. right. 30 years. Were you guys there? Any, any, any recall any stories? Wait, that was 30 years ago? This Scary, year. Huh? <laughs> I believe it's 2018. Can anybody confirm that? It is 2018. So it's 30 this, years. It's this year. It's, it, it is this year. <laughs> so that's why I'm gray and I had hair put in. Well, I, how about, it's, how about all, it's all coming together now. Restore. I mean, this guy looks way better than Brian Urlacher. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. No wonder. Yeah. 30 years ago. So... I think we touched on this. We've we've done this event a couple of years ago, and I remember, <laughs> I remember you telling a great story about that first night game, but I don't remember the details. What happened in that first, first night game? First night game. Uh, it was watched nationally. Uh, it was a big deal, um, and just to see lights up at Wrigley Field, it was it was a, it was going to happen that year. So there was a there was a big just uh, anticipation for that game. So the lights are up. The introductions. It's almost like opening day, All Star game. Uh, that type of an atmosphere. I actually did uh, one of my rare pregame interviews like 10 minutes before the first pitch um, uh, with Johnny Morris, Morris. Channel 7. I have a picture of him and I am up on the wall still of a pregame interview before the first night game. 10 minutes before, how's this feel? This feels great. The lights are on. It looks different out here. It's going to be cool. So uh, the, the game starts. Uh, Rick Sutcliffe, the starting pitcher, tells us before he goes out there, hey, guys, uh, don't be on your toes too much on the first pitch. The Hall of Fame has asked me to throw a ball on the first pitch. I said, okay, so no problem. So <clears throat> Sut goes out there. He throws a pitch two, two feet outside, ball one. They take the ball. They throw it away. Now he's 1-0 and on the count to Phil Bradley of the Phillies. So now he's behind the count. The next pitch, he has to throw a strike to get it back. He throws a strike right there. He, Phil Bradley hits it across the street for a, a home run. Uh, Sut was pissed about that because he, uh, he, he usually tries to uh, you know, be ahead in the count. So now we're down one to nothing. Uh, so bottom of the first inning, we're up. Uh, first hitter uh, gets on. That was um, Jerome Walton or Doug Desenzo, one of the two leadoff hitter. Now batting, Ryan Sandberg, just how they always do. I'm halfway up to home plate, and there's this roar that's like off the charts, and I'm saying, wow, this, this is totally different. I mean, this is different. The, the lights are on. This is different. This is a big deal. But what, what really had happened was, and what the facts were, was uh, Morgana the Kissing Bandit, <laughs> who back in the day of... 70s and early 80s, mid 80s, Morgana the Kissing Bandit was a blonde from Texas. Uh, well, well built from the waist up. Um, and and uh, in the past, Sports Illustrated uh, story about her, all that. Um, for instance, she went to kiss George Brett at home plate the year he was trying to hit 400. When Pete Rose was trying to break Ty Cobb's record, she made an attempt, I think, got to home plate, kissed Pete Rose. Nolan Ryan, strikeout record, she's at the game. She's, I don't know how she gets the tickets like this, but she, and this is before security, I guess, too, because she was able to jump on the field, run out there. Everybody just let her do her thing, kiss the player, and then run off. So 
what was interesting was after 84 and being the MVP and the Cubs going to the playoffs for the first time since 45, Sports Illustrated in 85 came out with a Sports Illustrated. Uh, Morgana's top 10 next targets. targets. Yeah. <laughs> Who do you think number one was after MVP in 84? Not me. It, no, it was not you. Um, I was number one on the list. So now here we got, so, so 85, there's a few games where I'm tiptoeing around, looking around as Morgana, <laughs> especially opening day, think all-star game, things like that, did not happen. So here it is, five years later, the first night game, and here, but back to the story, as the crowd roars, Morgana got on the field somehow down in the right field corner. Now the wall's 60 foot high, I still, you know what, that's a mystery to me today, how she got on the field in the right field corner. Anyway, she did. I look up, she's down there in the outfield. Here she comes, the crowd's going nuts. She gets to first base. Um, her weight's going way forward now at this point. Her weight is, her body, the run is, the jog is not good, but now security does go out and intercept her between uh, first base and home plate. They take her off the field. Take her down in the visitors' dugout. Now it's just the opposite. It's it's everybody's the, the forty-two thousand are now booing the security. <laughs> at that point, I'm up there still sweating at home plate to see what's going to happen. Uh, relatives in the stands, the, the whole works. Anyway, uh, step back, and so that's all taken care of. So now step back in there. So here's my first at bat under the lights. I get in there and um, Lance Parrish big catcher from the Phillies, and um, Lee Wire. Lee Wire is this uh, very tall umpire. I, I start to get in there, make a hole for, there for my foot. I get in there. Now, they are still discussing why they did not let Morgana come all the way in. And what did you think of her? And uh, wow, why did they do that? I wanted to see her. So wait, they're discussing that. And I got both feet in the batter's box now with my first at bat. So anyway, I says, I just stepped out for a Hey, guys, hey, guys, let, let's, let's go, let's go. <laughs> I get back in there, and the second pitch, I hit a two-run home run for that. Pretty sweet. To take the lead. Now, that game was rained out after four and a third with this thunderstorm that came up, and the, the water actually went in the dugout and ha went halfway up the ramp to the clubhouse, uh, which was insane. But, uh, but so the game was rained out. The home run was rained out. Harry Carey uh, off the air, holy cow, even God didn't want the Cubs to have lights. <laughs> Bill Murray filling time, he went Bill in the Murray booth for 40 minutes. Bill Murray was up there, yeah, yeah. So that was, that was quite the night, uh, the lights. Uh, for, for a few years after that, I think we were allowed 17 night games, you know, big deal, it wasn't. A, but in 1990, two years after that, uh, the Cubs got the uh, all-star game. Nighttime event, uh, all-star game. Uh, so uh, Dallas Green wanted the lights for all-star game, for World Series, for playoff games uh, to be played at prime time uh, with, the t with the TV networks. Is the Ryan Sandberg game, as it's called, is that a memory up there with the night game? The Bruce Souter game. Oh, you call it the Bruce Souter game. Interesting. I'm the only one in the world that calls it the Bruce Souter game. <laughs> How would that would I walk? Hey, how about the Ryan Sandberg game? I mean, that's me. I mean, why would I? Why would I? The Bruce Souter game. Yeah, you can't say the me no, game. Right that would sound bad. No, the me game. Uh, 
What was your question? The, the I mean, highlight? is that, yeah, like when you think back, what are the most vivid memories? 1984, uh, June 23rd, my number, oh. Yosh Kawana was right. <laughs> it wasn't June 14th, it was, it was June 23rd, 1984, half a game out of first place, St. Louis Cardinals in town, uh, always a big deal with the Cardinals, Cubs fans. Uh, we got word just before the game started that the main game of Saturday game of the week with Gary Giola and Vince Scully was rained out. We are now going to be watched nationally as the game of the week with Tony Kubek and Bob Costas. Game of the week, big deal to the players. Players would call that the game of the world. Uh, so uh, we're playing the Cardinals. Uh, Steve Trout, who today I see at the Cubs convention and around Wrigley Field, always gives himself credit. Uh, for, the, for the Bruce Suter game, but he called it the Sandberg game because he started that game, and uh, after the second or third inning, he's losing eight to nothing, uh, and he was pulled at that point, so he, he got that game rolling down eight to nothing. Cubs come back. Uh, it was a seesaw game. Uh, the Saturday game of the week, uh, commercials are getting ready to go off air. There's two outs in the bottom of the ninth. I'm up. Uh, Bruce Suter on the mound, dominant ground ball pitcher, oh, yeah. almost untouchable to get to hit the air, but maybe sneak a ball through the infield for a base hit at the time uh, because his ball drops about, about this much. But I was one of those guys that played wiffle ball in the front yard, and that ball was always dropping about this much or rising that much. So I stepped in there, and um, as I was in there, Willie McGee was just named the player of the game who hit for the cycle for the Cardinals. We were losing by a, uh, one run, and there was two outs. I had a strike on me. The next pitch was a, a drive to left center, out of here for a home run, tie game. They stopped the credits uh, that are going on the screen over my <laughs> at-bat. The producer, the director, we'd like to thank them. Wait a minute, we don't want to thank them yet. Wait, the game's not over. So we stopped that. Uh, two innings later, Bruce Suter's still in there, as closers did. If they blew a save, they'd stay, stay in there and try and get a win back in the day. Two innings later, two outs. A man on first were down uh, two runs at the time. Similar scenario with winding down here with the game, producer, director. Uh, second pitch once again, two-run home run off of Bruce Suter to tie the game once again. Bob Costas today thanks, thanks me for that game on, on, uh, on how his career kind of yep. jumped to a different level because everybody was watching and the way that he called it. Uh, so that was great. So ended up the day five for six, seven RBIs, two home runs against Bruce Suter. Most, most importantly, most importantly, the Cubs go into first place for the first time in, in 84, June 23rd, into first place. Uh, Dennis Eckersley, just, that was his first game in a Cubs uniform in a Cubs dugout coming over from Boston, another historic ballpark, which he thought was magical. After that game, uh, he, he tells me uh, later on that he, he was driving home, just leaving with his wife. He goes, could you believe that game? Is, is, and then he asked one of the teammates in the locker room, wow, is every game like this at Wrigley Field? <laughs> so uh, uh, Eckersley got a big kick out of that. and. Uh, as it goes on, Whitey Herzog, after the game, I could just see him sitting in his chair uh, with the Chicago media, and somebody asked, uh, what did you think about Sandberg's performance? I think would have been the question. That's what I would imagine. Right. 
and as a manager that just lost a game like that uh, in a race like that, they're at the top also with a very sarcastic answer. I would say, are you kidding me? He's the best player I've ever seen. He's Baby Ruth. <laughs> so I actually read that the next day in the paper, and I looked at that, and then there's a little bit of a cold sweat come down because I have a game that day against the same manager. It was Herzog against the Cardinals in front of the same fans. I felt like I had to live up to that game the rest of the year, which I actually, in a lot of ways, did. Ended up with the MVP. The Cubs go to the playoffs. Uh, good postseason, uh, hitting just under 400 uh, that year. And so uh, that was one game that, that uh, lifted my career to a whole nother level. And there was, there was times that I've, I've given a talk like this, and, and sometimes it, it comes to me, what if I'd have gone in that day and said, you know what, I just, what if I'd have been given the day off that day? What if the manager the day before would have said, hey, hey, Rhino, you played a lot of games. I averaged about 158 games a year, by the way. <clears throat> and they looked for about four games a year to give me a day off. What if they just said, you know, sit out tomorrow, uh, it's a Saturday. And that game would not have happened. The fans would have revolted, I think is what would have happened. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of fans and questions, I think you guys have written some out for us. And uh, Nick, are you going to be handling this? Yeah. Let's go, man. Uh, first one's from Jason Rowland from Compass. What pitcher did you own and what pitcher owned you? Uh, great question. Uh, Terry Mulholland, left-hander for the Giants, for the Phillies, had a cut fastball from a lefty that came inside. He would throw it two or three times during that bat because that was his comfort pitch. That was my hot spot. So I had multiple home runs off of him. Uh, as far as uh, uh, Kevin Gross, let's see. Kevin Gross was with the Phillies, and he was actually he was actually the pitcher that I hit the home run off of in the first night game, and I hit very well against him was with the Phillies. He actually went to the Dodgers and got with a different pitching coach and became a much different pitcher, and I, I, I barely touched him uh, after that. Another one that comes to mind is Larry Anderson, reliever uh, for the Astros and the Phillies. He had everything that he threw was either a cutter or a slider going away from my hot spot. And uh, it got to the point where, I mean, I couldn't hit him. It looked like it was coming in like a fastball. I'd just go like this, and the ball would go away, and I'd miss it or weakly hit it. And he was a reliever, so I'd usually get one shot at him. It finally got to the point where I just went up there and said, you know what, it's going gonna, it's gonna to move away from me no matter what the ball looks like. I'm just going to try and hit a gr hard ground ball to the second baseman. So that was my approach the last two years against him. The results was I hit a ground ball to the second baseman. I was out. Uh, I wish I would have come up with a different plan, but that's, but that's what I did. I just went like, oh, second baseman's there. So... Mission was, accomplished. Yeah. Mission accomplished. <laughs> Bad goal. Uh, Bad goal. Yeah. Last one. John from UGN. Compare the 84 Cubs to the 18 Cubs. To this year's Cubs. Uh, 84 Cubs was an older team. I was the youngest on the team by far at 24 years old in 84. Uh, Boa. Ron Say, Sodcliffe, Buckner. These guys were 
were 29. Jody Davis might have been 28. The rest of the team was 29 to 36, old guys. I was the youngest by far. Uh, 2018 team, this year's team, Cubs, much younger, much larger window. In 84, we had a, a window of maybe one, two years, 84, 85 window with these players. That was our chance to do what we wanted to do, get to playoffs, World Series. That was it. After that, they broke down the team. 86, I stood there, and there was maybe uh, a Sutcliffe, Sanderson, uh, Jody Davis might have still been there. That might have been it from the 84 team in 86. So they moved on. Rightfully so. The team was old. Uh, this team won the World Series in 2016, now 2018 for the Cubs. Average age, probably 26. I mean, they still got, they still have 10 years. Position players are so league, young, right? Major league players, they, they can play till they're 35, 36 years old. I think that's the biggest difference is the age difference. I really like the talent that comes up from the high school level, from the college level, the Javi Baez's, Addison Russell, year and a half in the big leagues. I mean, in the minor leagues, he's a big leaguer. Chris Bryant, a year. Schwarber, a cup of coffee in the minor leagues. World Series hero. Uh, the, these guys are much more knowledgeable about the game. There's, there's uh, two or three games on every day, seven days a week. Uh, you can Google anything. You can iTube at bats. You can see so much baseball. About 20 minutes ago, I said I had the Saturday game of the week, one game, and then I went out and played wiffle ball Saturday and Sunday, emulating what I saw on, on that one game where these guys have so much, uh, much more visibility of Major League Baseball and what it's all about. They, I think they, I think just, uh, at least from the shoulders up, very smart about the game, much more than I was at young ages. So I'm very impressed with that, with this Cubs group and uh, their ability and their, um, their instincts, baseball instincts, I think, were above, at their ages right now, were above where I was at that age, just because of that fact. Yeah. And I think they show it on a daily basis. Javi Baez, what he does, he just improvises out there, makes, makes up stuff as it happens like this. Baseball's like this. Uh, Chris Bryant, the same way. Anthony Rizzo. Uh, Zobras, I mean, all, hey, we're, all of them, all of them, uh, the instincts is incredible because, uh, because they get to watch it so much and they get to study it so much. Any, any iPad, any phone that they have, they can look at it at bat or somebody else is at bat. If somebody's hot, they can look at them, see what they're doing well, and it's at their fingertips. I think that's a big thing. So interesting. We're about to wrap up. If anybody has one last, one last fantastic question from the crowd, and we'll get you. No. The ultimate rule in baseball. He was my hero. hero. I just said that 20 minutes ago. He was my hero, all-time hits leader. Uh, does he have the stats to be in the Hall of Fame? Yes. Should he be in the Hall of Fame? No. Um, the only time during my career, basically, that I'd see the general manager uh, during, throughout a season was opening day. Unless there was a trade going on, then he'd walk through the clubhouse and everybody look up and there, there's a trade pending. He's in town. Uh, so before every opening day, they take the rule. There's a sheet rule, the general manager. They still do it today, and they did it in 81 when I was a big league camp. They, they read rule so-and-so. There will be no betting in baseball. The pen, all that stuff is, is, is laid out there. They, they hear it, all that. So Pete, um, as it turns out, bet on baseball. It took him 15 years 
to confess that he bet on baseball. Then they said, well, you bet on baseball and you also bet on your own team. So another 13 or 14 years pass. No, I didn't bet on, on my own team, but there's evidence there, so baseball doesn't say anything. They don't even move on Pete Rose yep. scenario. And then he comes out with a book and said he bet on his own team. He bet on baseball. So now we're talking 15 and 13, 28 years he lied about it. And it's the one thing you can't have in any professional sports is, is players within the teams betting on the sport. He did that, and that's not the Hall of Fame. He's a very good enthusio guest, though. Unfortunately. Very good enthusio, though. Last one. What do you got? Uh, the testing, I think, is, is working very well. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, Cano, Cano, how about Cano? Yeah. I mean, a Yankees player, I mean, second baseman, all-stars. Uh, very disappointing uh, right there with, uh, with Robinson Cano. Uh, with, with that coming about, well, it just proves that, uh, that it is working. Uh, the testing is working. I feel good about that. The baseballs. Uh, I just noticed, because uh, I'm in spring training camp in six weeks with the Cubs. I go out there, I put the uniform on, I'm with Joe Madden, I'm with the coaches and the players on a daily basis. Love that, love that. And then I do my uh, ambassador things and, and meet and greets in the suites and uh, the rooftops, um, sponsors, things like that, uh, which I enjoy. Uh, the baseballs I see in the spring, and back in my day you could use – you could hold a baseball and you could press the thumb and there would be a little bit of a give on that. With today's baseball, there's, there's no give at all um, for whatever reason, but it's consistent. Uh, the bats and the equipment is off the charts. Like in golf, the drivers every year the, come out with a new driver, goes 10 more yards. Not necessarily straight. I'd rather be straight <laughs> and, and 280 <laughs> instead of 295 and all over the place. Sure. But equipment's equipment, technology. Uh, but for me, the home runs, we're still talking about, I hit 40 home runs. I thought it was a big deal. I have a, a plaque, a Mel Ott Award, which I'm proud of in 1990. 40 home runs is still a standard. 35 to 40 home runs is actually what leads. And so was, what's that? No, so I think the home runs, it's not, we're not, we're not seeing 65 home runs. We're not seeing 85. We're seeing 40. 35 to 45 was the norm. Mike Schmidt, all those years, 40 home runs. So I'm the home run, the home runs. Now, one thing in baseball, one of the biggest things. Here's one of the biggest things in baseball that I see different in my era, uh, and and uh, this era is, and I've said this before. There there was not too many at bats where I went up to home plate in my whole career. Not dig in and make a big hole at home plate. That, everybody's watching that. The pitcher's watching you do that. Wow, this guy's pretty comfortable digging in. Uh, so I, there wasn't too many times I went to home plate and in the very back of my mind thinking this ball could be at my head, it could be uh, inside, whatever. But we were just we just knew that because it was a part of the game to pitch inside. And pitch inside meant two to three feet inside or behind you or under your chin or at your hands. That was a pitch. So we were trained to get out of the way of it. So now for me to bat uh, for 18 years, I went in there, and, and each time I got a base hit, I relished that because I knew I stood in there. This guy could throw a pitch right here if he wanted to. He could throw one here. I got hit, I got hit in my elbow standing in here just because I'd react like this. I got hit in the back, had welts on my back at times. Uh, 
But if I got too many of those too often, then Rick Sutcliffe would hit their guy, and their guy would have welts and all over his body. So that's how that evened out. But uh, it, it's uh, it's a danger. That was dang It's a dangerous sport with with these guys now today throwing 95 to 98 miles an hour. And we had Nolan Ryan, we had Gooden, Clemens was throwing like that. Uh, but these guys, I think, are a little bit more comfortable standing in the box. I don't even think they even that's in the back of their mind. So when you see a guy get hit, uh, Stanton. Uh, Giancarlo Stanton got hit uh, a few years back, and he went like this, and that ball is right here, and he just stayed right here, and it hit him in the head. Now, in our day, we would drop to the ground because we were used to seeing that. Chris Bryant, fortunately, about three weeks ago, uh, had the instincts just enough to just turn his head and make it a glancing blow, but uh, that's a big thing for the, the players today to stand in there and have a comfort that they can swing as hard as they want. They can swing at a ball and reach it that's six feet I mean, not, I mean, six inches outside and feel comfortable about doing that. In my era, if I'd take a swing at a first pitch fastball and it's three inches outside and go like this and swing, the next one was definitely inside somewhere. <laughs> so the game is much different uh, played as far as that goes. Uh, but I am impressed with, uh, not, with the home runs, but I would say the batting averages are down. So that was my next point. Uh, you only see about a handful of guys hitting 300 in each league today. Uh, we had Wade Boggs and Tony Gwynn in each league leading the way for over 10 years, 350, 360, but they're they Hall of Famers. Uh, and then it was maybe, uh, 10 or 12 guys hitting 300. Uh, I was a 290 hitter, as it turned out. But uh, the strikeouts that I see today, um, it's much more about the bigger swing and not making the adjustment of choking up. Remember the wiffle ball? Okay, these guys didn't play with the ball, so putting the bat on the ball, they don't move up on the plate to make it tough on the pitcher. They don't choke up, choke up a little bit, so there's no adjustment. It's the same swing as if they were 2-0 and that you see in their 0-2. The strikeouts are way up, so that's, that's another big thing that comes in today's play. And um, In my day, if you struck out 90 to 100 times, you need to think about it over the offseason and come back and strike out 70 to 80 the next year. You had to come back because you struck out 90 to 100. Now we're talking 150 to 175, 200, 200 strikeouts by a hitter. So that's, that's a different part of the game. It's a di different era. Uh, the pitching out of the bullpens is off the charts, 95 to 98 to 100. Each team has three or four of those guys. I'd say in my era we had one of those guys, and that was the closer, throwing like that out of the bullpen. And other than that, they had little sinker ball slider pitchers, the other guys in the bullpen. So that's, that's another thing that these hitters today have to face. All in all, I think it's a terrific game. Uh, Wrigley Field's packed every day. The atmosphere's off the charts. Uh, what ownership is doing, led by Tom Ricketts, and then on the field with Theo Epstein and uh, Jed Hoyer, uh, Joe Madden and the players, off the charts. Uh, I think it's fantastic. Uh, I like what they're doing around Wrigley Field as a, a little Wrigley town now, where you can you, now you can spend the whole day there. You can get up in the morning, you can go to Wrigley Field, have breakfast, and have dinner there at eight o'clock at night, and be very happy about that. So, I think it's awesome. Uh, it's great to be the ambassador of the Cubs and to watch these guys play. And the biggest thing in 2016, which uh, I wear the ring to events, is I don't have to answer the fans after 1984. <laughs> Up until 2016, 
when I'd meet a group like this, the first question, or if I left here and I met the guy, the parking attendant, what they would ask for uh, after 84 to how many years is that? 80, so 85 to 15, 30 years. One of the most common questions I'd get, are the Cubs ever going to get to a World Series and they're going to win a World Series? I did not get asked that since 16. Very, appreciate that. Perfect. We will end on that, guys. Thank you so much, Rhino. Thank you so much for being Thank here. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Ryan Sandberg. Thanks for listening to the Thuzio Live and Unfiltered podcast with our guest, Ryan Sandberg. Be sure to subscribe to Thuzio Live and Unfiltered wherever you listen to podcasts. And make sure you follow us on social media at Thuzio.